0: Though our call to worship came from the opening verses that we, uh, of First Peter 1, we'll read them again now, or you'll hear them as I read them. I want to read beginning of verse 3 through verse 9 of First Peter chapter 1. Hear God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. It was early morning on January 24th, 1848, and a man who lived in California named James Marshall got up very early that morning to walk along the gravel bar by the sawmill he had built for John Sutter. And on this particular very cold morning, he looked at the water and he scanned the rocky bottom. And In one of the pools of water, about six inches beneath the surface, he spied a yellow lump on a flat rock. He rolled up his sleeve, he reached into the still water, and he picked up the lump. It was about the size and the shape of a nickel. It was gold and shiny, but it did not sparkle. It looked like an old piece of chewing gum. It was small, but it was heavy. And it was a very strange find among the rounded stones in the river. So he immediately thought it might be gold, But he wasn't sure, so he tried a very simple test. He laid the lump on a smooth rock. He picked up another rock and struck it. And instead of breaking, it changed shape. That was the discovery of gold in California, which led to the gold rush of 1848 and 1849. Very interesting. When he discovered that rock that morning, or that gold, San Francisco had a population of 459 people. And one year later, there were 25,000 people there. And so for the next several years, thousands and thousands of people from all over the world came to California in hopes of finding gold. In this passage, as well as other passages in the Bible, your faith, Christian, is compared to gold, something valuable, something sought after. This is the second in a few sermon, a series on a few sermons on Christian perseverance, how to have strong faith when you feel weak. One of the obstacles to persevering in the Christian life is trials, trials of all types. They will test your faith. They will make you question your own character. They will make you question the character of God. They will make you question what is real and what is not. And so there is help here in 1 Peter chapter 1 for handling trials and difficulties. Trials are a normal part of life. They're a normal part of the Christian life. Sometimes people give the impression that to become a follower of Christ is to say goodbye to all your problems and all your troubles, and then the purpose of the church is for people to dress up and act happy all the time. And it just isn't so. This week, uh, on Monday, a guy recommended this book to me. And so I got it by Wednesday, and I'm about halfway through right now. And um, last week I mentioned a book, and the guy told me after the service, he said, I downloaded it on my Kindle during the service immediately, right? <laughs> Don't do that, because be, you'll find this more interesting than what I'm getting ready to tell you. But the title is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. Its subtitle is An English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. Uh, let me read you uh, the back of her description, or how it's described. Rosaria, she was, a, she was a PhD, she was an English professor, and head of the Department of Women's Studies at Syracuse University. And she said, Rosario, by the standards of many, was living a very good life. She had a tenured position at a large university in a field for which she cared deeply. She owned two homes with her partner, in which they provided hospitality to students and activists that were looking to make a difference in the world. She was involved in volunteer work at the university. She was a respected advisor of students in her department's curriculum. Then in her late 30s, this was in 1999, Rosaria encountered something that turned her world upside down. The idea that Christianity, a religion she had previously regarded as problematic and sometimes damaging, it might be right about who God was. The idea seemed to fly in the face of the people and the causes that she most loved. What follows is a story of what she describes as a train wreck at the hand of the supernatural. These are her secret thoughts about those events written as only a reflective English professor could. Uh, She says that the word conversion is far too tame to describe what went uh, on with her. She said, I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter, and that is impact. So she says meeting God and being converted to Christ was an impact that affected her life and many others. But trials, even from the outset, are a normal, inescapable part of living for God. I want us just to look for a few minutes at verses 6 and 7. I'll refer to what's around it and what comes after it, but just mainly verses 6 and 7. Because when he says in verse 6, "...in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." What Peter is doing is rephrasing. He is restating what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Have you ever been offered unsolicited advice by someone who has not experienced what they're talking about? Someone who has never raised children giving you advice on how to be a parent? Someone who has never experienced the death of someone close to them giving you advice when you are going through such? Now the intentions may be admirable and their love may be genuine for you and their advice may be dead on. But you probably give more attention to the advice offered from someone who has first-hand experience. So when I read books and articles by Johnny Erickson Tata who has lived most of her life as a quadriplegic, when she writes about handling trials, in my opinion, school is in session. And she wrote this, I think the Apostle Paul is in the best position to make such an exhortation because of his example. She's talking about when he says in Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. She says, He has credibility. Even when he first preached the gospel to the Philippians ten years before, he and Silas were arrested and thrown in prison. They were beaten, bruised, their feet in stocks, but they did not wallow in complaining and self-pity. They even sang praises to God at midnight. Now he is in prison again. He is not writing these words from a chalet in the south of France or while paddling around in a kayak in the shadows in the shallows of the Mediterranean. He is under arrest awaiting possible execution and what does he say rejoice in the Lord always I will say it again rejoice we have to cultivate rejoicing so in verse 6 he says in this you rejoice what's he mean in what in this is referring back to what's been stated in verses 3 and following the power of God what he has accomplished We rejoice that according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. So my rejoicing in the present circumstance is based on what God has done. And to cultivate rejoicing, I need to remind myself of what God has done for me, that He created me, that I was dead spiritually, as we all are without Christ, that Christ came and lived in accordance with God's law. He lived a perfect life, and then He died... For sins that were not his own, but for my sins. He became my substitute. And the punishment that I deserved was put on him. And he died fully. He paid the the penalty for sin and death. And he was raised from the dead. And he's now ascended to the right hand of God. And I've received his gift of eternal life. That I recognize God has forgiven my sins through him. And I'm a new creature. And the Holy Spirit dwells in me. And so each day when I wake up, I need to review this. Review it. To cultivate joy. Because joy is rooted in what God... Has done. You are not to rejoice because of your circumstances, but you are to rejoice through them. So your circumstances change, but Jesus doesn't change. Your circumstances will always involve something to be worried about. People that don't have money are worried about how to get it, people who have it are worried about not losing it. Uh, people who have their help are worried about losing it. People who don't have it are trying to recover. There's always something to be worried about, anxious about, but Jesus is always good. If your circumstances are always the determining factor of whether you have joy or not, then your circumstances will rule you. If your circumstances are always the determining factor of whether you have joy or not, then they will rule you. So you're called to rejoice through your circumstances. You're able to rejoice through them because you have Jesus. So if you lose a job, you don't rejoice in the fact you lost the job. You rejoice through that. If you fail a test student, you don't rejoice in failing the test, but you rejoice through that. If you experience sickness, you do not rejoice in the sickness, but you rejoice through that. Because in every circumstance, we can either complain or we can look for reasons to rejoice, and I am the world's worst. I'd like to stand before you as an example, but I can't. And some are fresh in mind. This past, this past Thursday, Barbara and I were taking our son Stephen to get some dental surgery done. On uh, When you're born with cleft lip and palate, it, it's incredible what they can do to try with the teeth and whether the teeth are there, and so now he's 16, and and because of his mental disabilities, he can't talk, and so they have to put him to sleep, even to x-ray his mouth. So we had been up to Atlanta twice for pre-op and so forth over the past couple of months. So this past Thursday, they called Wednesday, said we had surgery set up B. The Scottish Rite Hospital at seven, surgery will be at nine, great. I Said if we gotta leave at 5.15, we'll beat the traffic, we'll leave at 5.15, we'll be in good shape. We're doing great till six o'clock. We're on the interstate, it's dark, I'm in the middle lane, which my wife later explained to me, I should always drive in the left lane, but uh, anyway, because of what happened. We're driving, it's dark, a deer carcass in my lane. The remains of a deer, I can't traffic on both sides, so I can't move. Boom, I run over the carcass, and I knew it hit kind of hard. And then the TPMS, tire pressure monitoring system, which I'm very well acquainted as of last Thursday, says your left front tire is about flat, so we pull off at the Jonesboro exit, and for the next hour or so, we're dealing with spare tires that won't come down, lug nuts that won't come off, and um, I have a godly wife, and so I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm questioning, oh man, you know, this all, what are we going to do, and how far, uh, so we... My point is we can know, I guess I'll put it this way, our knowledge of this can be here, but our experience and application can be here, and we call this the application gap, (laughs) of which mine I thought was here Thursday morning at 7.15, it was there, and he did get there. They did surgery starting at 10 after nine, so it all worked and we were home that afternoon. But we're faced with these circumstances and we can choose to complain, we can have reasons to rejoice, and if you're married to a very godly person, it can really just stick the knife in. When they do the latter and you do the former, you know, when I'm complaining and she, she's saying, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. I mean, the world turns on this right here at this exit, the Jonesboro exit and the Shell station. I mean, don't you see, Barbara, this is the center of God's universe right here and we're late right here in this parking lot. So is it possible to rejoice always when suffering? Look what he says, continuing in verse 6. You have been grieved. This is the reality of the world in which we live. Now, notice how he puts this here, how Peter says it. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith and so forth may be found result in praise and glory to God. And so he mentions rejoicing in the midst of grieving. So we rejoice and we, we grieve at the same time. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 says, We are sorrowful, yet as always rejoicing. Which is it? Sorrowful or rejoicing? Peter, is it grieving or rejoicing? It's both at the same time. Now this sounds strange to an unbeliever. But a believer knows what it's like to rejoice and grieve at the same time. The person dies. You love the person. You prayed for them. You prayed for answers to prayer. Lord, I, I'm heartbroken. I'm hurting. I'm hurting. I'm hurting. But I praise you. I praise you that you're in control, that, that this person is down with you. Oh, I'm so heartbroken. and are going to miss this. Joy grieving, joy grieving at the same time. And so we see God's design in that. And then in verse 6, he says, a little while, for a little while. In this you rejoice, So now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. John Piper says, brief is relative, right? When you say a little while, that's relative. For example, if you're talking, and you find out this person's a swimmer, and here's a couple of kids, well, I can hold my breath a long time. What's a long time? Uh, Two to three minutes? Boy, that is a long time underwater. But what if you say, how long have you lived in Macon? Oh, I've lived here a long time. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean 20 or 30 years. Some of you mean 150 or 160 years, I think, by your generations. But so when you compare a long time with holding your breath underwater with something that may be decades, there seems to be no comparison. What does he mean for a little while? Does that mean 20 minutes? Does that mean this week? What's he comparing it with? He's comparing it with eternity. So whatever suffering, whatever afflictions, whatever trials we are going through, even if they last the bulk of our lifetime, the Bible still calls it, compared to eternity, it's a little while. It's a little while. And so Peter shares James' perspective. You are just a vapor that appears for a a little while. There's the phrase again. He's referring to 60, 70, 80 years as just a, a little while. Compared to the length and greatness of the future God has planned for you, all the distresses of this life are very little indeed. And then he says, you've been grieved by various trials. And the word various there is comprehensive. I mean, it means all types. And there are many types. We know Peter, in the remaining chapters of this letter, through chapter 5, he mentions a lot of those. One is an abusive world. The Christian, you today are in a no-win situation. If you if you think that, well, I'll follow the Lord and people will respect that, you're fooling yourself. Here he mentions that you'll be criticized for doing what is right in chapter 3, verse 16. He says those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ. Then in chapter 2, verse 12, he says you'll be criticized for doing what is wrong. So the world world will say, hey, you're a Christian. Boy, you sure are self-righteous. Why aren't, why aren't you participating in what we participate in? And so you, you say, well, I can't. Well, you sure think a lot of yourself. You look down on us. Okay, I'll participate. Well, you hypocrite. What are you doing what we're doing? You're supposed to live differently. And then it says in chapter 4, we'll be criticized for not joining in socially on occasions. It says they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. Then in chapter 4, it says you'll be criticized for being religious. You'll be insulted because of the name of Christ. Then he mentions other type trials, difficulties at work in chapter 2, verses 18 and following. The workplace has always been a place of difficulty for Christians. Uh, And when I mean work there, it means the arena where you serve, whether it's a job, whether it's a profession, whether it's as a student, whether an athlete. So I think it's broad there. Wherever there's a system of work and labor and authority, that's what he's talking about. And so it's not realistic to think that your walk with Christ is going to be problem free in the world. It doesn't mean you compromise, but you should not expect that it will be easy. I know of a a young man who out of college uh, got married and took a job, and he was really excited about the job. And He wanted to serve Christ. He was trying to grow as a fairly young Christian. And the night came where uh, the boss said, we're going to entertain these clients. Go with us. This is very important. These clients are coming from out of town, I believe. And they go to a, I think it was in Atlanta. And to his surprise, they go to a uh, gentleman's club where no gentleman would go. They go to a strip joint, a high-dollar strip joint. That's what it is. And they get out of the car, and he says, I can't go in. And the boss says, this is real important to me. I need you to go in because they have these clients and we're going to entertain them. He said, ah, no, I can't do that. He said, why not? He said, because if I go in there, I will be breaking my marriage vows. And the boss said, this is very, very important. And the fellow said, I'm not going. And now, I don't know if he lost his job, but he was prepared to lose his job at that point. There, it's just it's, it's places of difficulty where there's compromise or whatever it may be. I'm going to move on. He mentions the trials of being married to an unbeliever in chapter 3. He mentions the trials of spiritual warfare in chapter 5 with an attacking, attacking devil. So the trials are not limited just to these areas. When it uses there are various trials, it's comprehensive. Here's a good definition. It means anything in this life which tends to trouble you, the things that tend to get you down, those qualify as trials. So is it possible to rejoice in trials without knowing the purpose? I would say we need to know the purpose. And so it's possible to rejoice when we know the purpose God has in mind, and that leads us to verse 7. We need to understand why these things are happening. Now I'm not talking about where we try to get real specific and say, okay, your car, got a bro- your car broke down, your tire blew out the other morning. Now let's read back in everything that God was doing. Well, that that's all speculation. I mean, I can see, I guess we could see God's hand in it. It could be a whole lot worse. You could break down, blow out right. You could always say it could be worse. There could have been a crash. Somebody could have been hurt or killed. But to try to interpret our our events from the godly perspective That's very limited because we're just looking at it from from human categories. And God looks at things all over time, all over the whole planet, all over human history. So we're at a slight disadvantage to try to interpret things that happen. But we do know this. All right, so what can we know, Chip? This says we can know the purpose, and that is that trials are to refine the faith of the believer. I may not know the specifics, but here in verse 7, when it says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Peter is saying, whatever trials you are going through, ultimately the purpose is to refine your faith so that the praise and glory and honor of Christ might be reflected through those. That is the purpose. I don't know the specifics. You don't know the specifics. And anybody that tries to give the specifics is just uh, speculating. So Peter draws an analogy here of God purifying metal. And we find that through the scriptures. We find it in the Old Testament, that same analogy. you know about gold? 75% of all gold ever produced has been extracted since 1910. 75% of all gold ever produced since 1910 it's been estimated that if all the gold throughout all of history that's ever been refined if we could put it in a cube it would be 66 feet on each side so i guess from here i don't the door's not 66 feet so we would it would make a cube that would fit right in here that would be all the gold that's ever been refined in all of the world through all of history during the 1800s Gold rushes occurred whenever large gold deposits were found. The first discovery of gold, it wasn't the largest, but the first discovery of gold in the U.S. was not in Georgia, everybody hollered out Dahlonega at the first service. It was in North Carolina in 1803. But the first major gold strike was Dahlonega, the first first major gold strike in the United States. Then there were other gold rushes in California, Colorado, other places. Now, this is interesting, because of its historically high value, much of the gold mined throughout all of history is still in circulation today in one form or another so it 's interesting to kind of speculate where that wedding band, where that piece of jewelry, that necklace you 've got on maybe it maybe it belonged to an Egyptian princess or something like that at one time. Gold is a precious metal it can be It typically, though, is mixed with impurities, and those impurities lower its value and they decrease its beauty. Therefore, it has to be refined. Now, in its basic, how the process works in its basic sense is with intense heat to the gold in a crucible. And when it's heated to the the liquid state, then the impurities rise to the surface and the well-trained goldsmith would skim off the impurities. And it says here, and it says in other places in the Bible, God values your faith, Christian, more than gold. And like gold, your faith must be refined so that it will be genuine and pure to God's glory. So what is the fire he uses then to heat the gold? Trials. Trials are the fire that is applied to the gold of your faith. Now, when the refining fire is over, the gold is more valuable. So your faith grows. You have faith. You trust God. You put your faith in Christ. I'm talking now to Christians. I'm talking to people who are Christ followers. But there are impurities in your faith. There's complaining, and there's roots of pessimism, which is faithlessness. Faithlessness. Maybe you have tendencies to trust yourself, or to trust others, or to trust your abilities, or to trust your finances, or to trust your position, or to trust your relationships, or to trust your popularity. And you mix those in, and so this gold has all this dirt mixed in with it. And so these impurities in your faith are a hindrance to you fully experiencing the goodness and the greatness of God. And God is not satisfied with that. And God is not satisfied with that for you. So what does he do? He brings the heat. He designs the fire. Trials, problems, afflictions. Not because he's sadistic, but because he wants your fate to grow and be purified and be more and more genuine. That you be completely dependent on him and not on things and persons for your joy because they will let you down The best illustration I know of in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 1, he describes his own suffering, he and some co-workers. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's writing and telling about what they went through in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He's saying we were so we suffered so much, we gave up. We thought dying will be better than to continue with what we're dealing with. Indeed, he goes on to say, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, I read it quickly, but what did he say? That, talking about the affliction they went through in Asia that was they thought would... Death would be better than what they were experiencing. He said it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Who? Who, by the way, he raises the dead. That's how powerful he is. So Paul was describing God's design for refining his faith. And so God took away from Paul the ordinary props, the things that made him feel secure. He took him away to where he felt overwhelmed. And that's the fire of 1 Peter 1.7. So did God do this to Paul to show him that he did not love him? Did God do this to Paul because he was angry at him? Or to punish him for some sin? No, God was refining Paul. He was refining Paul's faith as gold is refined. So let me talk directly to you, believer. Are you in Christ? You have a loving Heavenly Father. A loving Heavenly Father. And He knows how much you can take. And He knows how much heat to apply. And He knows how much you cannot take. And He will never, ever send too much your way. He knows the right amount. And He will apply it in the right amount to refine your faith at the right time. And it's only for a season. It is only for a season. So are you troubled? Are you discouraged? Does everything look black? Do you feel like, oh, he's not refining my faith, I feel I'm losing my faith? Well, you're in the hand of a father who loves you, a wise father who knows what he is doing. And there may be wonderful periods of blessing coming ahead of you, and you have no idea about it. He may bring some unexpected unexpl- some unexpected blessing to you, and it's the farthest thing from you run right now. And you'd be overwhelmed if you knew what was coming. He may have some great work he is preparing for you to do. Oh, and by the way, often, I think the things we go through now, you know what he's preparing you for? Maybe something 10 or 15 years from now. It's not like, oh, I learned this this week and then next week I applied it. Don't we, those of us that are older, we look back and we draw on things we learned when we were teenagers that were painful? we tell our own kids, let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what I did and I brought this about. Let me tell you what God taught me. And now we apply it 30, 40 years later? Well, what is the result that God desires? That's verse 7. He desires praise and glory and honor. That the reward is yours to pass through the trials. Again, just let me read a couple of sentences by John Piper on these verses. When Jesus appears in glory, two things are going to happen. His glory will be magnificently reflected in the mirror of your faith. He will be the trusted one and the hoped-for one and the rejoiced in one. So his glory will shine in your faith and hope and joy. But since God exalts all who exalt him, he will give praise and honor and glory to your faith. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant and then we will finally see the design of god in our distresses that this that has been the extraordinary joy of sharing in the very glory and praise and honor of god himself so don't raise your hand but who wants to avoid trials and difficulties and afflictions as a christian i guess we all do but if we do it's really foolish because when we look from an eternal perspective at what God is doing through them, it would be foolish to avoid them because they are a key part of God's plan of redemption. And therefore, the Apostle Paul, I'm going back to him again in 2 Corinthians 12, he saw them as such in his own sufferings. This is an amazing verse, Second Corinthians 12:10. He says this, "'I take pleasure in infirmities.'" That's really there in the Bible. Trust me, I'm, I'm reading right here. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions. Who takes pleasure in persecution? I take pleasure, he says, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 1 Corinthians twelve ten. What produces that? That's... That is a refined faith. He wasn't lying at that point. He wasn't being facetious. Those are the words of a a very mature, seasoned believer who'd been through a whole lot. I'll close with this. Are you, (laughs) those of you that maybe are science majors, are you familiar with Biosphere 2? They built this thing, and they continually expanded. It's at the University of Arizona. It's a research facility. I think it first opened, if I remember, it seemed like it's about 20 years ago. It may have been longer. The Biosphere too, And it's this self-contained community within this, these structures. And there are a number of, of smaller environments. There's a rainforest. There's a desert. There's even an ocean. And so they run these experiments and they're studying all these things. Well, when it first opened... The scientists sequestered, (laughs) I love that word, and we're getting to use it now, okay? They sequestered themselves for two years. In other words, they locked themselves inside. there. So they, they are in the biosphere for two years, and they're studying all the different environments with no outside influence. And to their surprise, they found that the acacia trees during that time bent over and snapped. And you know what they discovered caused this? No wind. It was a windless environment. And so without the stress of the wind to strengthen the the wood, the trees grew weak, and they could not even hold up under their own strength, under their own weight. We want a problem-free life, right? We don't want any wind. Guess what? That's what God uses to build our faith. So whatever you're going through right now, and I'm sure if we could have a list, we would be horrified probably at the depth of the suffering represented in this room. Some of the things you're going through would paralyze the rest of us. We don't know the specifics, and I don't even try to speculate as to why. But I do know ultimately the purpose, believer, is to refine your faith like gold. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are foreign thoughts to our human nature. We pray that you might help each of us as, that if we've come to know Christ, that, that we would look to you in trouble, that can cre- present itself in a thousand different ways. And we ask that we would look to you in faith rather than just complaining or uh, murmuring that we would trust the purpose that you'd hold us near and dear and that we'd know that you love us. Uh, Bless those in here, especially that are suffering hard times right now. Help them to look to you. Help them to find comfort in your wisdom and in your power. And for those that don't know Christ, may you be pleased today to give them faith, that gift that they would believe and receive uh, his forgiveness, acknowledge his work on their behalf. In Christ's name, amen.